binds us together as your people is your faithfulness. Everybody standing in this room this morning can look back and see how true that claim is. The utter faithfulness of God. Even, Father, in the midst of difficulty and trial that we didn't want, we look back on it now and we see, oh, Heavenly Father, how marvelously gracious you were to us. That your promise that all things work together for good to them that love you and are the called according to your purpose, that's true. It was as true back when we were in difficulty as it is today when we're not in difficulty. Your faithfulness has never waned, O oh God. You've never made us a promise that you didn't keep. Father, your people relish. We absolutely relish your faithfulness to us. But, Father, every time we think of it, it exposes our lack of faithfulness. We are not our people who have kept our promises. We made vows we didn't keep. We, uh, we told you that we would do things that we didn't do. We, um, we made plans based on something we thought you were leading us to do and we didn't carry through. Father, forgive us. Apart from your grace and mercy, we will never change. But, Father, we so want to change. We want to be more like our Savior. It is he and his great work for us that stirs up within us a desire to be godly. It is not our godliness that will save us, we know. But in response to your amazing love and mercy and grace, we want to be more like our Savior. And the more we reflect on him, the more we love him. And so, Father, while in this brief hour, give us appetites for holy living, might we leave here stirred from the base of our souls because we've sung together, we've prayed together, we've been together, we've studied together, we've listened together. We want to be a people who leave here a little bit more like the Savior we love. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen. We come to the point of... 14 and 15, the trial of Jesus Christ. Beginning at, ch at chapter 14, verse 53, follow as I read. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some arose, then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him to be deserving of death. 
Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now skip down to chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he, would, that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him! Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? They cried out all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus, after he had scourged him, to be crucified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In the winter of, actually it was in January, it's inscribed, in the winter of 1973, a man gave me this book. Um, his name was Smith, really was. He was an attorney. It was an attorney in Louisville, Mississippi, where I worked as a youth director. This man's son was in my youth group in Louisville, Mississippi. The book is entitled, as you can see, I hope you can see, The, the Trial of Jesus. He gave me this book thinking that I would appreciate it and enjoy it, and I have, uh, in January. In April, I participated in this man's funeral. Not the author, the man who gave me the book. The man who gave me the book had killed himself. I had been a Christian about three and a half years. <laughs> I had not, not only had I never done a funeral or a suicide, I'd never done a funeral. And I, um, I could tell you that long story. It was, it was a, a real learning experience. But again, the book that I was given relates the trial, and I should say trials. You do know that Jesus underwent four trials, don't you? There was the one between, uh, before Caiaphas and Annas and the Sanhedrin, then Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate. There were four trials. And, and what this book does is basically um, expose the breaches of Roman and Jewish law during the trial. In fact, the book is, is divided into halves. You've got to the, the half of the book is about the Roman trial. Um, and then the other half of the book is about the Jewish trial. And it points out how many 
<laughs> violations of their own law that they committed in conducting the trial of Jesus Christ. Fascinating reading. And one of these days I'll tell you more about what's in here. But the, this morning, we can really only skim the peaks. Here's what I, I want to start with. I want to start with this. Um, tell me. And we're, there's a couple of attorneys here, and I, I think they could tell us. Maybe we could interview them. Uh, um, what is the purpose of a trial? Well, if I'm not mistaken, the purpose of a trial is to, is to discover truth. Through this process of the trial, we're supposed to arrive at truth. That's what a trial does, I think. Well, gang, uh, in the process of Jesus' four trials, truth took a real beating. Gang, um, I, I think you know that Jesus had two natures, divine and human. And um, Jesus really had two basic trials. One was a religious trial, the other was a political trial. And all the judges agreed that he had to die, but they just didn't agree as to why he should die. But they all agreed that he must, oh yes. In fact, uh, it was quite evident that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin uh, had already determined that he had to die long before the trial took place. In fact, one of the violations of law is that the Sanhedrin was forbidden to meet at night. Well, they did, because in their mad rush to have him killed, they were going to violate whatever they had to violate because their minds had already been made up. Um, they, all they were trying to do is to look for some kind of excuse to carry out their already intended purpose. They... Um, they didn't desire to learn anything. They just wanted to find a reason for their planned injustice. So, um, so finding out what was true, it, it was really not the design of this trial. These guys had already um, determined what they were going to do. They were completely prejudiced against the truth. They're just looking for a reason to, to get on with it. It's interesting that, as you know, Jesus was, was uh, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And from there to the temple, he, temple, he would travel for the, through the Kidron Valley, which is a cemetery now. I've seen it. And I, and I hope you'll go with me next year and see it again. But, but uh, we're told that he entered the temple through the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was the gate through which sheep were led that were going to be slaughtered for sacrifice. Isn't it ironic that the Lamb of God is now taken into the temple through the sheep gate? He was first led to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. But they both represented religious authority and religious rule there in, uh, in Jerusalem, and in all of Juda Judaism. I, I, I found an interesting fact in my research this week that it's, it's said that Annas also had five sons. Now, Caiaphas, who was the reigning high priest, was his son-in-law. But that Annas had five sons, and from another source I, I, I discovered that all five are said to have had booths. 
in the temple on the day that Jesus purged the thing. You reckon that influenced them at all? You reckon the fact that Jesus overturned their money changing influenced the jurors? The apex of the uh, religious trial occurs in verse 62 of chapter 14 when uh, Caiaphas, uh, or was it Annas, uh, asks, do you, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. It's a simple little Greek couplet. Ego eimi. Um, and I'm not sure why they were so upset with him. Was it because he answered in the affirmative that he was the Christ, or was it because he used that couplet, ego eimi? Because you remember in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is dealing with Jehovah and he says, who shall I say sent me? And Jehovah says, I am. And I wonder if what they heard him claim is what I think he was claiming. That is, that he is God. Well, the high priest responds very dramatically, my kind of guy. Tears his clothes, cries out, blasphemy, blasphemy. And the trial is over. And the charge is blasphemy. And the verdict, based on truth? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hardly. So then we come to the political trial in front of Pilate. Now, the, the Jews hated Pilate for lots of reasons, but two in particular. On one occasion, under the cover of night, Pilate had, um, had erected some pictures of Tiberius Caesar in the temple. Oh, my. You can't imagine how repugnant that was to Jews. And so to get them taken down, they went to Pilate and offered their necks. Go ahead. And then they filed a complaint through Herod to Tiberius, and, and ultimately the pictures were taken down. On another occasion, Pilate... Um, misappropriated, can we say, or confiscated some temporary treasure, temple treasury funds and built an aqueduct with it. They didn't like that either. But tonight, they needed him because it was against the law for them to execute anybody. And they, they had to get Pilate's okay to execute this villain. And they knew well that the charge of blasphemy wouldn't ring true to Pilate because Pilate had a whole different set of gods than they did. So they had to customize their charges to produce the greatest effect on, on Pilate. And so Luke tells us that he is charged with three things. He's charged with sedition or being unpatriotic. He's charged with leading a tax revolt. And he's charged with trying to become a rival king. Now, none of that's true. But it doesn't matter. But Pilate is particularly concerned about charge number three, rival king. This, this Roman crowd is fixated over, um, over being a king. Um, he, they mentioned it several times. They mentioned it in verse 2, verse 9, verse 12, verse 18, verse 26. The whole focus of Pilate's investigation has to do with, are you a king or are you not? Because that's the real thing that, that scared Pilate. So in the end, Pilate makes a decision. Um, 
really prompted by two things. I guess, number one, although it's not mentioned in the text, his fear of Caesar, because he didn't want anybody rivaling the real king of Rome. Um, and he tries very cleverly to try and shift the blame over to Herod, and, and then he tries this whole Barabbas thing. Neither one of those worked. But in the end, he comes back and makes a decision. And um, he's to be crucified, as you know. It's interesting for me that Judas, who betrayed him, go, goes to the priest and say, We've, I've betrayed innocent blood. Um, Pilate couldn't find any guilt in him. Herod couldn't find any guilt in him. Pilate's wife, Claudia, comes to him and says, he's a just man, leave him alone. The thief on the cross says, there's no bad in this guy. And then finally, the centurion standing at the cross, he says, you've just crucified the Son of Man. They all agree. They all agree. They all agree he's innocent. But let's kill him anyway. What do you say? There's nothing guilty about him, but why don't we just crucify him anyway? Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Probably the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of mankind. Brought on by what? I don't know about the rest of you, ladies and gentlemen, but for me, the absolute nadir of this story is in verse 15 of chapter 15. We're told there that Pilate, after a thoroughgoing investigation, came to a conclusion based on the evidence that Jesus was guilty and therefore must die. No. We're told there that Pilate, because of his, his weighty concern for the issues of justice versus injustice, uh, made a decision that uh, Jesus should be crucified. No, no. We're told in verse 15. So Pilate, Wanting to gratify the crowd. Oh, gosh. If that were ever true of me, I'd never tell you. That is so despicable. He makes a decision based on truth? Oh, of course not. He makes a decision based on where can I get the most applause. You know, gang, um, I'm afraid that some of us make decisions like that. We arrive at truth the same way Pilate did because we want to be known as broad-minded or tolerant. And because we do, truth gets trampled because we love applause. How does this sound? Each man should determine for himself what is or isn't true. Isn't that, isn't that noble? Can't you just hear the applause of the crowd? Again, um, I have a gut feeling that Pilate knew just how outrageous this whole thing was. Do you remember it is in John's account, not in Mark's, but in John's account, Pilate pauses in the midst of all this and he says... What is truth? Tiestan Aletheia. What is truth? Which, ladies and gentlemen, prompts me to conclude that what is on trial here is truth. It is um, 
It is supposed to, that is a trial, is supposed to help us discover truth. But what gets slain here, ladies and gentlemen, is truth. Now, now let me tell you a couple of lessons that I hope will, that we can take out of here and then I'm finished. Here's the lesson in its broadest sense, I think, from this scene. The lesson is this, if you're not careful, if, if you are not hedged in by truth, if you're not directed by truth, if you're not a lover of truth, if you're not devoted to and committed to discovery of truth, then ladies and gentlemen, you can do some pretty wicked things. Can you see the depths to which men will sink when truth is not their guide? You know, how does Caiaphas and Annas determine truth? Well, they manufacture it. There's nothing true about it. It's purely based on their biases. But uh, they create a picture um, so that they can accomplish whatever it is they want to do in the first place. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that's happening today. The media is doing that today. I, I ran across a, just a delightful quote from Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde said this, If you cannot answer the arguments of your, uh, of your enemies, don't panic. You can always call them names. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know something. We're being called names. We're being called bigoted. We're being called intolerant and guilty of hate crimes. Is any of that true? Of course not, but it doesn't matter to this culture. Gang, have you heard the, the latest rift? The, the Southern Baptist Convention blessed their little hearts, and I'm, I mean that. The Southern Baptist Convention wanted to go to, I think it was Chicago, and evangelize. And you know that they got letters from preachers in Chicago saying, please don't come up here with your convention because we're guilty of what's called hate crimes, violence. The poor Southern Baptists want to go out and convert a Jew. And Judaism is up in arms about the very intolerance of such an idea. Where did they get that truth, ladies and gentlemen? They manufactured it. Doesn't matter doesn't matter to them. They can just call us names. People do it with religion too, ladies and gentlemen. They concoct a God. They invent one. They invent one that they hope exists, which ultimately makes them the, uh, the final arbiter of the truth. I, I, we're running late, but I hope you'll bear with me a minute or two. My son-in-law, um, Gracie's husband, is a very bright boy, far brighter than his son than his father-in-law. But he has entered into a dialogue on the internet with a, uh, a man whose last name is Scott, and he is the founder of the Mobile Atheist and Skeptic Alliance. Now, if you move to Mobile, Alabama. There's a nice church there for you. Um, the Mobile Atheist and Skeptic Alliance. And this, this dialogue goes on between my son-in-law and this man. And I, you know, I'm not going to read it to you, so relax. 
I just want to read you one sentence. Each of us, as individuals, is our own ultimate authority. Each of us, as individuals, is our own ultimate authority. Do you know how sad that is? Can you see where that will lead? What's the population of the world? Five billion? That means we have five billion ultimate authorities running around out there. How do they come to their truth? I'm it. I'm the source. I'm the origin of the truth. Gang, tell me. Who, who, who settles a dispute when everybody is their own ultimate authority? I, I'm simply saying that, gang, what you see portrayed in this trial of Jesus is a, is a very current theme. Truth doesn't matter in this, in this trial. And truth doesn't matter today. And ladies and gentlemen, if you are not hedged in by the truth, can you see the extremes to which men can go? I'll tell you another thing. Pilate, how did he find truth? I'll tell you how he found it. The Gallup poll, that's how he found it. He wanted to know what would gratify the crowd. I sure am glad I don't ever do that. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter whether you commit the error of Caiaphas or the error of Pilate. If you are not hedged in by the truth, you're going to... It's very possible for you to do things that are pretty ugly. Let me show you one more, which is really not in our text. If you've still got your Bibles open, we've got to move rapidly. But this is in Deuteronomy 13. I just thought this was a great insight, and I, it was mine. <laughs> Maybe that's why I thought it was great. But just allow me to read you a couple of verses out of Deuteronomy 13. And, and, and you'll get the point, I think, immediately. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, now look, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, let us, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Now do you see what, what, what God is saying there? If somebody comes among you, and they, they, they predict a miracle, and it comes to pass. They perform a miracle in your experience, right in your front of you. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them if what they say violates this book. You know, folks, I have people saying to me, oh, it's got to be true because God is blessing it. Yeah, yeah, that's why I've seen God bless that. Ladies and gentlemen, that doesn't mean anything. It may. But ladies and gentlemen, I can work a miracle in your midst. But if I teach you something that violates this book, I'm just a demon. My point is you can't arrive at truth via your experience. You can't. 
ladies and gentlemen, it'll get you in big trouble. Gang, um, it doesn't matter which route you take. You can take Pilate's route, you can take Caiaphas's route, or you can take this Deuteronomy 13 route. Truth still gets butchered. Which, of course, I hope you can tell what it is that is the only way to discover truth. This. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if this is not the final rule of your faith and practice, you can end up doing just about anything. You can call abortion a woman's right. Is that insane? You can, um, you can encourage same-sex marriage. You can uh, ordain women to the office of elder. You can uh, call gambling entertainment. You can engage in genocide and call it ethnic cleansing. Or you can despise a whole race of men because of the color of their skin. And you can crucify incarnate truth. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, how good God is to not leave us in the dark. One of his greatest kindnesses to us is to leave behind a book that will help us discover truth. Let me, let me say one other quick word of application and I'll shut up. Let me just show you what happens when this is not where it should be. I was in a discussion recently um, with a man whose marriage was breaking up. Didn't look good for the marriage. And um, he was telling me all the things that were going wrong in it. And so, of course, he, um, he thinks the problem is the woman, <laughs> which most of us do think that. And, um, and uh, you know, he just looks at me just, you know, just... Ah, uh, you know, I told her that the Bible teaches that uh, uh, she's supposed to be submissive. She's supposed to be submissive. And whenever a man says that, I get real nervous. And I said, well, tell me this. How do you understand submission? To you, what does submission mean? <laughs> Here's what he said. Well, I'll tell you what submission means. It means she's supposed to back down. Quote. At least the back down is a quote. Back down. Again, can you see what problems could be produced in that marriage if you get your truth from some other source than that book? Gang, where is it? We are raising a generation of children who have absolutely no sense of anything true, right, or wrong. And you know who taught us how to parent? Not that. We're reading books like my child's self-esteem. Gang, 
all I'm saying this morning is this. In the trial of Jesus Christ, we, see, we get an illustration of the extremes to which men can go when they're not hedged in and lovers of truth. The only way truth can be known is through that book. And I hope the applications are obvious to all of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we, um, we are paying a high price for discovering truth in the wrong way. We thought we were listening to some authorities, and, and then our authorities, they worked miracles, and yet they violated your word, and, and, and we, we have a disaster on our hands. Father, please forgive us. Forgive us, O oh God, that we, we would dare dream that we knew more than you did. I pray, O oh God, that you will raise up a new breed of man and woman who are not people with heads full of knowledge, but people who are such lovers of truth that they will discover more and more delight as they see how true you are and how true is your word. Father, if you've led people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, incarnate truth was crucified by men who were biased against truth or who loved the applause of man more than they did the approval of heaven. Oh God, might no one leave here today in such a state. Might they see that though truth was trampled for a season, Three days later, truth triumphed, and it will again. Father, might people see that great victory in our lives? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The way we close, gang, is to...